You're listening to At Any Rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends and themes in fixed income, currency, and commodity markets today. I'm your host, Jay Barry, co head of US rate strategy and chief US government bond strategist at JP Morgan. In this podcast, we discuss our latest thoughts on the US economy, labor markets, inflation, and the Fed, as well as the demand for treasuries and the outlook for rates. Finally, we'll spend some time looking at the ongoing volatility and swap spreads and the potential for bank regulatory reform. Joining me today on the podcast are Mike Faroli, Chief U.S. Economist, and Srini Ramaswamy, Co-Head of U.S. Rate Strategy and also Head of U.S. Interest Rates Derivative Strategy at J.P. Morgan. We are recording this on October 25th, 2022, and our comments today are based on latest research from our U.S. Fixed Income Markets Weekly and U.S. Weekly Prospects publications, available to institutional clients of J.P. Morgan on the J.P. Morgan Markets website. Mike, Srini, thanks for sitting down today. Um, I think, as we're all aware, the three of us have spent a lot of time together over the last week visiting institutional clients in the U.S. And um, in that context, it seems like all the conversations that we've been having, there's been a strong undercurrent of, of questions and concerns that we've been sort of asked about the economy and the fixed income markets and that it would be good to sit down and sort of reprise the roles that we played last week. Um, so I think in that vein, um, maybe just best to kick things off and turn it over to Srini to start the flow and talk about what's happening here. Thanks, Jay. Um, so actually, perhaps it's best if we start with Mike. I'm going to ask Mike, you know, like all the questions, all client interest these days is centered around the Fed. Uh, so Mike, tell us, what's your Fed call? What do you expect from the Fed in November, December, and perhaps beyond? All right, so I think the easy part of that <clears throat> is November. Uh, next week at the FMC meeting, we and I think everyone who follows us are looking for a 75 basis point hike, which would be the fourth such hike cycle. Uh, so that's the easy part. Uh, I think it gets more interesting when we look ahead to December. Uh, we are looking for the Fed to dial it down uh, to a 50 basis point uh, hike in December, which would be considered a big hike if we went back a year, but now seems like uh, a bit of a... Uh, easing up in the pace of tightening. Uh, and then we actually look for a, uh, a step down again in the January, February meeting to 25 basis points. And basically have the Fed pausing there at 475, uh, which is well, top of the range would be 475, uh, under the assumption that by then uh, we see some uh, more material slowing uh, in labor market activity uh, that being said, we have been surprised by the resilience of the labor market. And if we continue to be uh, surprised, I think there's a case that the Fed may have to be hiking in March and perhaps beyond if, uh, if we don't see that you know, deterioration in the pace of job growth. So one of the questions that seems to come up a lot when we talk about you know, our house Fed call and particularly the slowdown to a 50 basis point hike in, in, in December, um, clients frequently ask, you know, is it really possible for the Fed to uh, to pivot slower? What if inflation is running high? So how do you think that plays out in terms of um, slowing down the pace, but also preserving, you know, hawkish message and, you know, sort of not surprising, uh, not, not surprising the market in a dumbish way? Yeah, so I do think it's important that the Fed, uh, as you say, preserves the tightening and financial conditions that has been uh, affected so far. 
Uh, and I do think one of the uh, nice things about doing a, a step down at December is that December you will uh, have uh, an updated series of dots and a new SVP. So if those dots uh, revise higher for 23, uh, then I think you can offset the uh, mildly dovish message of a stepping down to 50 basis points with a message that they're not done and that uh, they are expecting uh, uh, more hikes next year. So I think that's one of the reasons to um, think December maybe. I mean, they're going to have to they're going to have to dial it down at some point, and December uh, seems like a logical uh, time. In addition, I think we've been uh, getting some signals of a bit of a change in the tone coming out of the Fed. Um, I think it began really with Vice Chair Brainerd's speech on Columbus Day, where she um, where she um, was uh, uh, discussing more lags in the monetary policy transmission mechanism. Uh, I think we saw uh, saw that a little little bit again with uh, you know the New York Fed's board of directors voting for only a 50 basis point increase in the discount rate at the September meeting, and then hearing from uh, Mary Daly discussing uh, San Francisco Fed President Daly, who's probably uh, you know one of the more influential persons on the FOMC ta also talking about potentially dialing down uh, the pace and then that being reiterated uh, in a few press reports we saw. Um, so those all give us a little more confidence uh, that December is indeed the time when we can expect a bit of a uh, moderation in the pace of tightening. So um, one of the things that uh, I've heard you talk about uh, and, and just to push the topic of financial conditions a bit further um, is is really sort of the relative importance of you know stock prices versus other channels like you know the strength of the dollar. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how you see sort of the relative importance of stocks versus the currency? Yeah, so you know, I think everyone kind of looks at financial conditions uh, kind of through their own <laughs> whatever is closest to them. Uh, However, I think for the Fed, uh, perhaps the dollar is actually quite a bit more important than equities. Uh, at least if you look at their model simulations, the effect of a 10% uh, move up in the dollar is much more uh, meaningful for growth and inflation than a 10% move down uh, in equity prices. Uh, and that's probably even more, more so the case recently where it, it looks like wealth effects in the past 15 years have been rather muted. So uh, we do think the move in the dollar is pretty significant. Uh, unfortunately, it also has very long lags. And so it may be well into next year before we start to see that dollar strength really manifest itself in weaker, um, weaker exports and weaker factory output. Okay, let's pivot from, you know, uh, policy to the real economy. Um, where does all this leave you in terms of your outlook for the US economy um, in, in the next year? Yeah, so for next year, we're looking for another year of um, sub 1% growth on a Q4, Q4 basis. Uh, and we actually see that growth uh, is likely sliding close to zero by the uh, by the middle or end of next year. So we do think we, we may be flirting close with uh, a recession. Um, and if we have any, uh, you know, if, if productivity growth comes back here, we could actually see um, you know, uh, quite a bit weaker uh, labor market performance next year uh, than we saw this year. So I think next year is is 
kind of a year of living dangerously in terms of uh, the uh, um, the viability of this uh, expansion going forward another year. Okay, um, maybe we can finish with a with a two part question. You know, and and part one is I'm sure you get this a lot. Um, what do you think the odds are that the Fed can successfully sort of uh, contain inflation um, and sort of avoid um, a hard landing? Um, and and I guess a related question there is, um, what level of inflation do you think the Fed might be comfortable with? Uh, you know, are we shooting for, you know, is 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 two the number, or you know, people have asked about whether the Fed might be sort of comfortable with inflation running, sort of uh, at a higher threshold. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, we're confident that the Fed will get inflation down. I think where we're uncertain is whether it's going to require a soft or a hard landing. Uh, right now, we're, we're pretty close to 50-50 uh, on that question. That's both subjectively as well as uh, through our suite of inflation models point to something. I'm sorry, recession models point to something uh, in that range. And of course, the, you know, the out, outputs of those models will vary depending on whether you're looking at um, economic data, the state of the business cycle, interest rate markets or, or, or risk markets, but uh, generally they kind of coalesce around 50-50 over the next year. Um, uh, but we do think, you know, eventually the Fed will get inflation down. Uh, the question, your, your follow-up question, you know, what level of inflation would they be okay with? Uh, I, I think a on a core PCE basis, if we were below two and a half, I think that's close enough to, close enough to two. Uh, you know, perhaps if you roll back 10 or 15 years, you know, and we measure this in the hundreds of basis, you know, hundreds of you know, basis points. Uh, you know, they may have wanted something a little lower, but I think, uh, you know, two and a half would probably feel like success uh, after what we've been through over the past uh, year. But I don't think anything like three, you know, three or above, I think, still would be kind of unacceptable for the Fed. Thanks for that, uh, Mike. Uh, this could be a good place to pivot to Jay here. Um, you know, all of this uncertainty around, you know, policy and the economy uh, is having its impact on, you know, on, on demand for treasuries. And Jay, you've talked a lot about, about this. Uh, so tell us about what you see in terms of the backdrop for treasury demand. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Srini. And I, I think it's fascinating that on the demand side that over the course of the last six months or so in the treasury market, we've lost three core pillars of support for the treasury market, all of whom are sort of more price insensitive sources of demand. And that we're now in the sort of feeling out stage where we've lost those price insensitive sources of demand and yet we haven't found sort of more price sensitive buyers. So stripping through the first part of that, I think we know that the Fed has shifted from QE to QT. Um, and to be fair, like I'm very sensitive to the fact that there's asymmetries there because QT is happening passively. Um, there's not active selling. And in large part, the, the rebalancing of treasury supply away from the Fed back to private hands is being done in the form of short-term T-bills. But nonetheless, it's the absence of demand there. And the Fed was buying on average the average maturity of the treasury market for the past couple of years in the intermediate sector. The second is the US commercial bank community. And I think you and I will probably spend some more time talking about this a little bit later. But U.S. banks bought nearly three quarters of a trillion in treasuries over the prior two years and have been net sellers this year. There's no deposit growth. Their assets on their 
balance sheet have extended, so there's no need for treasuries right now. And finally is the foreign community. Um, I think the strength of the dollar has brought with it well-known and announced interventions from various DM and EM central banks. Global foreign exchange reserves have dropped uh, approximately a trillion from their peak earlier this year, and the dollar represents about a 60% share. And many of those are um, held in, in US treasuries. So it makes sense that there's been selling and more sort of price sensitive private buyers. Well, the yield pickup from sort of shifting out of your home currency government bonds into treasuries with a, even a short-term hedge is now a yield give up. So they're all gone. And at the same time, it's hard to envision who the price sensitive buyers are. You can look to asset managers in the US, but we know this is a year in which all asset classes are down 15 to 20%. And in fact, when we look at our core bond fund index, which tracks the largest actively managed funds in the US, they've underperformed index by a further percentage point to a percentage point and a half, and they're seeing outflows. So don't know if they'll be the source of demand. You know, it stands out to me that probably one more price sensitive source of demand is the US pension fund community as their funded ratios, as we now cast them, are probably approaching 114, 115%. But the sense is, is that with vol so high and rates having moved higher so rapidly, you know, they're probably going to behave a bit more sort of deliberately and that that may not come in yet. So I think we're in a feeling out stage where we need to sort of find the incremental buyer. But as you've talked about, as long as this uncertainty about monetary policy exists and volatility remains high, it's unlikely that this will return in spades, which means that you know, the risk is we could continue to see yields rise, even though, you know, very locally, they're sort of shifting back lower once again today. So how does all this feed into your, um, you know, rate forecast? So what are you looking for in the months ahead? Yeah, sure. I, I think a few things on that note. Um, you know, first, when we think about the rate story, for a while, we've been thinking that the curve should be highly inverted because the Fed puts rates into deeply restrictive territory against the backdrop of a US economy where trend growth remains low and neutral policy rates remain low. And in fact, our forecasts still call for a highly inverted curve, but from current levels, we look for rates to shift higher basically in parallel by about 20 basis points from current levels. So we have two-year yields settling in around 465 around year end and 10-year yields around 420. And in the cycle, we kind of have that as the peak because historically when we've gone back and looked at Fed tightening cycles over the last 30 to 40 years, rates have tended to peak anywhere between one and three months before the, fa the last hike. You know, when I think about the balance of risks around that and hearing what Mike has said about the vulnerabilities around his Fed forecast, if that peak in rates comes later and higher, it likely means that you might push that peak into next year, um, you know, particularly given the sort of backdrop we talked about with respect to demand that we have yet to find some sort of stable footing there. But here, I think the, the move is likely to be more parallel shift higher rather than a further flattening, just because empirically, even as we've priced in more Fed tightening over the last few weeks, the market hasn't been able to flatten the curve. And then with that overlay of the lack of demand backdrop and intermediates, it gives a sense that this could be somewhat more parallel in nature. So um, how do you square the, um, I, think, I think the demand picture for treasuries, like you've noted, uh, is pretty weak. Um, but the rate forecast isn't all that much higher from, from current levels. So how do you think about that, uh, the, uh, the, the squaring of the demand picture with your, your rate expectations? I, you know, I think that's a, a fair question and a phenomenal one, that it would in itself blend probably some sort of error around those forecasts. And when I think about how we derive our forecasts, it's from building empirical frameworks about the drivers of short-term and long-term yields over a longer horizon. 
And even though those factors and those frameworks are highly explanatory, there's an error around those forecasts of something like 15 to 20 basis points. So would I be surprised, even with our Fed forecast and where we think inflation expectations are heading, that 420 you know, is seemingly the right fair value, but could it be as high as 440 to 450? Absolutely, particularly against the backdrop of this loss of demand. And I think it's sensitive to understanding that, you know, again, if there is some vulnerability to our Fed forecast and the labor market doesn't slow, there could be some upside risk as well. Um, but that's how I would sort of place things in time as a fair value, given how we know everything, but that there is certainly risk on either side of that coming from just sort of the, the, the historical error and kind of the way I put together my frameworks and think about rate forecasting. Thanks for that, Jay. And now I'm going to ask you a question, which I know you've been talking, um, you know, uh, you, you've been talking about this quite a lot. So let's talk about treasury buybacks. So um, help us set the stage. It's It's been in the news and everyone is, of course, uh, interested in it now, but give us the background, you know, sort of how did we get to this point, you know, some of the developments in recent months, what changed last week, and what are your expectations regarding buybacks by the treasury? It's been fascinating how quickly this has evolved. So I think to set the stage, you've seen the Treasury Department um, and its sort of close um, cohort of advisors, the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee, delve into Treasury market liquidity and functioning over the last number of months. And there was a presentation in the spring, which gave the sense that liquidity conditions were lower than on average, but not sort of depressed. And uh, as a follow-on at the August refunding, the, the Treasury Department tasked a, a TBAC member with looking to treasury buybacks, which could be used to either facilitate liquidity and off-the-run treasuries, or to potentially manage um, its cash and maturity structure, knowing that there's a sort of pretty large standard deviation in its maturities every single month, and there's sort of a seasonal sort of volatility in, in, in its inflows um, around taxis and other points of the year. And in that charge question, whoever presented on it gave a number of pros and cons thinking about buybacks and said further study was warranted, but it didn't seem like any sort of imminent sense of facility was coming. And in fact, the the sort of conclusions of this presentation were very similar to one on buybacks that was done back in 2015 as well. So kind of lukewarm at best. But then fast forward to, to two weeks ago, and now um, the Treasury in its pre-refunding questionnaire inquired about buybacks in very strong detail. And it suggests that something has changed, as you've said, over the last couple of months. And to me, what's changed is what happened in the UK. Um, the strong move higher in UK yields driven by um, policy, expected policy changes there and delevering from the LDI community, I think was a shot across the bow for regulators and for the US Treasury. And there's reasons to think that the Treasury market is much different than the gilt market. But you know, we're sitting here two and a half years past the onset of the COVID crisis. And a number of regulatory and advisory bodies have recommended changes to the treasury market, which would shore up its resiliency and improve its liquidity. And none of those changes have yet been made. So I think this is the treasury department saying, what can we do in case something like this happens in the US? And you heard it in, in um, I almost called her Chair Yellen, but Secretary Yellen's comments, where around Columbus Day, she talked about treasury market intermediation, not keeping up with the growth of the market, and then when asked about these very facilities in recent weeks, she talked about them as being a possibility as well. So with that change, it makes me think that the urgency's changed as well. We'll probably learn a lot more about buybacks in the minutes of this refunding and TBAC meeting. But um, I think we know 
the, the pipes are open for buybacks. The treasury conducts um, small value exercises every year, but probably they need to be very thoughtful on how to construct such a facility because they've got to be regular and predictable because it's part of their debt management strategy, but have flexibility to go where there's dislocations in the market. And I think we've got a systematic framework for evaluating that based off of market depth, treasury curve dispersion and dealer positioning. But I suspect that we won't get any sort of buyback facility delivered until early next year. So I think a lot's changed and we'll learn a lot more perhaps next week, but I wouldn't expect anything to be up and running. And it's certainly being driven by these global events. So I, I think it's really fascinating and we'll, we'll be keeping track of it. But maybe, you know, on that note, Trini, it makes sense to sort of pivot away from the cash markets and think more about the derivative markets, because certainly there's been a lot of volatility in swap spreads over the last couple of months. There was a, a pretty sharp widening into the late part of the summer, but then into September and October, spreads across the curve have narrowed. Um, and I know you've been very focused on this. So what do you think behind is behind the spread volatility? Um, and what do you worry about with respect to swap spreads? Yeah, I think um, it does sort of go back to a little bit of what you've been concerned about, you know, the sort of sharply different demand picture um, you know, sort of banks have stepped away from, you know, from the treasury market for, for different reasons. The Fed has stepped away for a different reason. Um, but more recently, I think the strength of the dollar is having sort of its own sort of impact. Uh, we've seen the headlines recently about sort of, uh, you know, growing risks of FX intervention flows. Um, and effectively, that would take the form of, you know, basically selling dollar denominated assets on the part of foreign, you know, sort of reserve managers. Um, and and, and front-end treasuries would be sort of uh, a part of that, right? And we see some of that in the in the custody holdings data. So you can, you know, uh, the Fed has data on, on treasuries held in custody, and it's a reasonable proxy for holdings of, you know, foreign reserve managers. Um, and you can see in late September, you know, sort of a sharp decline uh, in, in custody holdings that actually does correlate with, you know, sort of dollar strength. Um, and it also correlates with sort of uh, sharp narrowing in swap spreads. So I think I think it does paint a picture of, you know, sort of uh, the strength of the dollar is sort of potentially raising the risks of central banks needing to uh, sort of intervene in currency markets. And that's having, um, I guess, a, a, you know, one more sort of uh, factor to worry about in, in with respect to swap spreads. And it's been... Um, part of the reason behind spread volatility and the sharp narrowing in swap spreads. So if I can just sort of follow along this line of questioning then, is there a backstop for, backstop for swap spreads then? Because certainly it appears that treasuries on a spread basis are as cheap as they've been in a number of years. Can banks potentially be a backstop for spreads? Um, and what would it take for banks to sort of buy treasuries on asset swap in scale? Yes, I, I, I do think, uh, you know, banks would be sort of a natural sort of backstop buyer for, for treasuries on an asset swap basis. So I think if spreads are wide enough at some point when spreads are wide enough relative to, uh, say, IOER, which is sort of the marginal opportunity for, for, for large banks in the U.S., um, you know, uh, so long as spreads are wide enough relative to that benchmark, adjusted for spread volatility. So you have to also consider, okay, um, you know, what is the level of, you know, spread pickup that you might get uh, and what sort of risks are you taking uh, with respect to sort of AOCI. So I think um, there is a level of spread, um, you know, at which, you know, treasuries would become pretty uh, attractive on an asset swap basis for, for banks. 
and I think the case gets helped um, if uh, volatility or, or spread volatility starts to moderate as well. Um, so yes, I, I you know it, it you know the 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 volatility in spreads probably sort of raises the bar, uh, but there is a level at which you know especially front end treasuries would be attractive to banks on a on a swap spread basis. Now, I think this is a good segue into sort of thinking about reg reform, because I think there's been a lot of talk about um, SLR reform and how that could potentially impact bank demand for treasuries, um, and especially in the context of possible policy measures that would improve liquidity and risk-free markets. What are you looking for in sort of the outlook for regulatory reform, particularly with respect to SLR, and what's your outlook for liquidity as we go forward, both near-term and, and medium-term? Yeah, when I think about SLR reform, I think um, the in the spirit of the question, um, I think about two dimensions there. Um, so one is sort of uh, asset scope. You know, will the rule set be modified to exclude reserves from the calculation of uh, of leverage, uh, or will it be exempting reserves as well as U.S. Treasuries? Right. So that, that's sort of two possibilities that you can imagine. Um, you know, so with respect to exactly what assets get sort of included or excluded from, from leverage calculations. Uh, and then a second dimension would be, what are the rules to which such exemptions might apply, right? So for example, everyone knows about the SLR rule, uh, which is, you know, sort of the most um, sort of uh, familiar rule, but there is also the, uh, the, you know, leverage also plays a role in calculating a bank's GSIP uh, footprint. It's one of the factors that feeds into it. Um, and then you could ask the question, will any potential reform exclude, uh, you know, treasuries or reserves or some combination of those uh, also for GSIP calculation purposes, right? So our thoughts on this are, first and foremost, it's probably more likely that reserves get exempt than treasuries. Uh, there's just a higher hurdle to um, exempting sovereign debt from, you know, leverage calculations. And it's not necessarily a U.S. issue. It's more, you know, when you think about sort of Global banking regulation, you know, raises uh, more complex issues, I guess. Um, so, long story short, we think, uh, you know, perhaps SLR reform is likely, and it will take the form of, you know, sort of exempting reserves, uh, but exempting treasuries is um, sort of down, you know, much much lower in likelihood uh, is our, our our take on it. Um, and with respect to the second dimension, if you will. Um, modifying the rule set with respect to GSIP calculations is perhaps even more unlikely. Um, and I do think it's important, though, because, you know, especially when we think about the, uh, the context of sort of liquidity in the markets, um, what you need to promote liquidity in the markets is sort of the improving the banking system's ability to provide marginal balance sheet in a time of stress. Um, and I think uh, GSIP rules are sort of very material to that because, GSIP is one of those rules where, you know, it might not, you know, marginal leverage may not matter all that much, uh, much of the time. But if you are cuspy and if you're sort of, um, you know, near a point where, you know, sort of a little bit of a growth leads to, uh, you know, a, a, a jump in your GSIP bucket, so to speak, uh, then the cost of that leverage becomes very nonlinear. So, so I think, I think, long story short, I think GSIP modifications are uh, perhaps even more important or, or, or needed uh, from, you, you know, if, if your objective was to sort of make leverage modifications for the purposes of better liquidity. Uh, but I also think that's far less likely. Now, overall, I do think the liquidity picture will likely improve, 
but not in the near term, right? So I don't think it's, you know, we're talking months. I think as we look ahead beyond sort of, you know, perhaps into the first or second quarter of next year, I think then you will get the virtuous cycle of, you know, policy will become a lot clearer and we'll, you know, we will know where terminal rates, you know, are likely to be. Um, and as policy becomes clearer, you will have this sort of virtuous cycle between, you know, lower volatility because of greater certainty around the path of the Fed, lower volatility and, and, and better liquidity sort of feeding on each other, right? So I think better liquidity is perhaps, you know, some time away, but we will, you know, eventually get into that, you know, sort of uh, stage of the game where you will see the current sort of negative feedback effects play out in effectively the other direction. And hopefully we will find uh, a much better liquidity conditions at some point, you know, next year. So when I tease that out and sort of put together everything you and I, we've all been talking about, then that makes the case at some point, probably the price sensitive buyers for treasuries will return. Probably at some point spreads begin to widen, but in the meantime, it could be a bit bumpy and probably just sort of, you know, reinforces the case for the treasury to take some sort of action to shore up the uh, resiliency of the treasury market. Um, but I've got one final question and maybe saving the best for last because kind of intertwined throughout this whole conversation has been volatility. And we know that implied and delivered volatility has been very high lately. I'd love to hear your take about what's driving this. Um, and then what is your outlook for vol as we go forward? And as Mike talked about, there's scope for the Fed to downshift its pace of hikes in December and beyond. Yes, um, it's been perhaps the perfect storm for, you know, for volatility. Um, so there is, I, everything begins to me, when you think about volatility, it begins with sort of policy clarity, right? Like, so this is, this is unusual with respect to sort of Fed tightening cycles. You know, we are sitting here 300 basis points into a tightening cycle, and it is still not perfectly clear, you know, what the next one or two meetings might bring, right? Like, so there is still a lot of uncertainty around, um, you know, even one to two meetings out, what, you know, what, what sort of magnitude of rate hikes we could get. That is not typical for a cycle, you know, that is, you know, this, this far into, um, into the, the cycle. Um, so that is clearly a big contributor to, um, you know, to volatility in the markets. You just have such a wide dispersion of, you know, future possibilities for, for the path of rates. Uh, but beyond that, there are other factors as well. You know, like I think one interesting one is the inflation backdrop is global. The policy response is sort of global. And what this has done is made uh, it led to increased correlation between global rates. Um, and what this means, you know, with respect to volatility is um, US rates have become a lot more volatile in sort of the overnight hours, right? So effectively information flow in non-US markets um, drives volatility of rates globally, including the US, um, and there's just a lot more volatility to monetize. Um, and yet another factor that seems to be emerging is that rates are becoming more log normally distributed. And that's just a fancy way of saying the volatility of rates is sort of proportional to the level of rates. And the level of rates is certainly rising, you know, pretty fast. Um, so where does it leave us overall? I think some of those factors are going to subside, like I said, not necessarily immediately, but, you know, in some medium term horizon, uh, policy will become clearer. Um, and, you know, as it becomes clearer that inflation, if we do succeed in sort of turning the dial on inflation, I think, some of the, the first two of these factors will moderate. Uh, you'll have sort of, uh, you know, uh, a moderation and sort of 
correlations across the globe and also policy clarity will help lower and low, lower volatility. Um, but the log normality is, is a factor that will keep, you know, volatility somewhat elevated uh, relative to what we might have become accustomed to. I think it will go down from where we are now, but perhaps not as much as one might expect um, based on, for example, looking at the 2004 uh, hiking cycle. So volatility is here for some period of time. Um, it's going to be a bumpy ride, uh, but, you know, it will pull back, at, you know, uh, moderately sometime in, in the next year. That's great. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel, some point in the future, but not now. Uh, Srini and Mike, thanks so much for, for sharing your thoughts today and sort of reprising your roles and, and everything that we've been talking about with clients the last couple of weeks. Um, thanks so much for joining today. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. Um, stay tuned for more episodes of it at any rate. JP Morgan's Global Research Podcast Series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2022, JP Morgan Chase and Company. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on October 25th, 2022.